We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Is cooking a blue-collar profession or a white-collar profession? And I think that's kind of up to you to decide, you know, but you wouldn't whistle in a courtroom when you're about to um, litigate and you wouldn't have your materials all willy-nilly. So to that point, the kitchen can be that if you want it to be. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Former pastry chef and current empire in Misha boss Alex Stupak is a complicated and incredibly sincere dude. And in this episode, we have a really spirited conversation about what it's like to open a new restaurant that isn't part of the Empayon Mexican multiverse. The food here is Eastern European and Stupak's most personal project to date. We talk about that and his big ideas for the future. I hope you enjoy my talk with Alex. Alex Dupac, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back. It's awesome to see you. Uh, I've seen you since, but we last you on in the spring of 2019. And a lot has changed. You've opened restaurants. We've had a pandemic. And Empayon remains my favorite restaurant still. Like, honestly, one of my favorite restaurants around. I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. I, it's so consistent and, and delicious. And what have you been up to? Well, like you said, there was there was a pandemic there. <laughs> yeah, right. We all dealt with that. So uh, for the most part, I was, um, you know, living in fear and trying to cobble all our businesses back together yeah. and get them back open. Uh, I think that's mostly what we've been doing the last few years. Uh, but we did open a couple things, which I'm thankful for. Yeah, opening uh, post-pandemic, too, must have in New York City must have been challenging. We'll talk about Misha, your new restaurant in Midtown East. But um what was the biggest challenge to get Misha off the ground? Uh, again, there, there's all these things related to the pandemic. The aftershock of it really did affect everyone. Everything you heard about um, supply chain shortages, it wasn't just eggs and cheese and butter. It was plywood and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, electrical supplies, copper pipe. So just the, the physical act of building the restaurants, which is always onerous, to yeah. be honest, uh, it was even more so. Yeah. Just getting getting those those heavy pieces of equipment into Midtown into an office building is just alone. A, it's a ballet. No, hundred percent. And you heard you know you heard about this great worker shortage in restaurants. There was also shortages of plumbers and electricians and carpenters. Yeah, it, it really did touch everything. I want to go back a little bit because the last time we didn't really tap into this too much. But when did you start cooking professionally? I, I don't think I've ever asked you this. I would love to get your take on that. Professionally? Yeah, what was like your earliest job? I know uh, we'll get into the future career, but where did you start? Uh, I think it was a, I was a prep cook and dishwasher at a restaurant in Lemonster, Massachusetts called The Pewter Pot. And I was wow. 13. <laughs> wow. So. Just like a real classic story. I feel like that's like such a, like a Bourdain story. Yeah, like I, I tried a few different things. You know, I, I tried to... Uh, I don't know. I tried to be a cashier once and it, it was just so freaking boring. And I kind of always knew I wanted to cook from a pretty young age. So 
I was just always trying to do something. I, you know, I worked at a country club. I worked at a catering company. You work at a cafe, you, you know, so I was definitely touching food all throughout high school. And so your, your family was in the restaurant business, your grandfather and your father. Um, no, my grandfather was a chef. Uh, my father was not. Uh, my, my grandfather died uh, pretty young, apparently, but he was a chef. And my dad would tell a lot of stories about, you know, him working in his father's restaurant. He had he has a lot of regret. He feels like he would have been a chef mm-hmm. if his dad had lived longer or mentored him, I guess. Uh, but yeah, my dad was not a professional chef, but he was definitely the cook of the household mm-hmm. and food was always important. Back to that first job. How did you feel when you were working in a kitchen at 13? What was that feeling like? Um, I don't know. I, it, there's definitely a there's definitely a sense of pride, even though it's like a harder life to to get out of class and then go work for, you know, a solid six to seven hours and be really tired in the morning. But I was always really proud of um, of working hard. I felt like I was getting ahead on something that I, I, I knew in my heart I was going to do forever. So, Alex, what I'm hearing is that the physical element, the physical aspect of the job, the, 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 the hard work of working in a restaurant, also like completing a task at the end of the day, that was like an early draw. For sure. I, I think I think cooking is unique because it's physical, but it is also intellectual. Um, I don't think I'm a non-intelligent person, but when it comes to the real studious aspect of school growing up, I, I just never did well at it. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want to read that story. You weren't it, applying yourself. It, yeah, but it's because the thing, I don't know, I just, I guess I don't like the theoretical stuff. I like the directly applicable stuff to learn about something and then be able to stand up and do it. It's interesting because it's like cooking is cause and effect, right? It is. Like, I mean, I think gardening is that way. Anything that it is a skill that requires intelligence, but then you get to do it and work at it, like physically work at it. Um, Maybe that just means you're a certain type of learner. Yeah. Well, totally. There's absolutely, absolutely different styles of learning, and you've you've hit something that you enjoy because clearly you during your career you 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 learned, you mentored, you you were under mentorship, and you you have mentored in the in the future. But let me ask you, where did you actually go pro when you became like a professional? Well, okay, so I I had the good fortune. My high school, I had the choice to to go to a vocational school, so I got to take culinary arts. They didn't call it that there. They call it food services. Mm -mm. I think they were more grooming you to be a fast food worker, but I I did get to cook uh, four years through high school. Um, I went to the Culinary Institute of America, um, Clio in Boston. Mm. And I worked in restaurants before that, but Clio in Boston to me was a a marker of like my first sort of hardcore kitchen where I felt like the, like these are real cooks and these are real ingredients um, and they're talking to you in a very real and direct and intense way. Yeah, I mean, widely recognized um, as one of the finest restaurants in the area. I remember when the anniversary came up a few years ago and that was a huge deal. A lot of people have gone through Clio. Yeah, Ken is, Ken was a, I mean, he still is. Ken but Oranger, that is. Ken yeah. Oranger, yeah. Uh, very intense chef. Uh, when I was working for him, extremely driven to be the best in Boston, um, rarity was a big deal. So you like, you got to work with ingredients that you'd never seen before. And I'm not just talking about like truffles and foie gras. You're talking about like pico roco barnacles from South America mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Like real rarity. So he was in, in, in sourcing was obviously extremely important and, and, and shipping things in from all over the world. To cook For with. sure. Yeah. 
Then you end up at Alinea. What's that like? Um, Alinea, so a couple things happened in between there. So first time I worked at Clio, I was a cook. And then I I went back to culinary school, and then I got out. I, I cooked in Chicago for a little bit, moved back to Boston, mm. um, took a job, and then that turned into my first pastry chef job, which then I left and then became the pastry chef at Clio. Okay. And that was very different. Um, going to the pastry kitchen for me, it wasn't about – weirdly, it wasn't about a passion for pastry. It was about wanting to – be left alone <laughs> yeah. at a young age, you know, like, so I, I had the the good fortune to kind of tinker in these kitchens and create and, and kind of teach myself more or less. And I think I developed a style in the basement of Cleo's kitchen. Um, and that's what I think got me to able to be work to work at Alinea. It's which so, was totally different. Which was a whole nother phase. I'm just reminded of the show The Bear and the character who's teaching himself pastry on the side. Right. It seems like that like is a real thing, clearly from what you just said. Yeah. Again, Cleo never had a pastry chef before me and Ken felt like he needed to have one to take the restaurant to the next level. And they just stuffed me in a makeshift kitchen in the basement <laughs> where um I did it, you know, um not working for that much money. But I like, again, I felt like I could make a lot of mistakes um, without worrying about anyone looking over my shoulder or yeah. me embarrassing myself, which was an important process. Really for me. a luxury when you're in pastry, because oftentimes there are many people looking at you when you're in a kitchen. Yeah. And again, Cleo was a very busy restaurant, but it was yeah. also a small restaurant. So I was kind of able to do it all myself. Okay. Was there a signature that you, from that era that you felt you really, really nailed? Um, yeah. Well, we did this. We came up with this one technique um, where we figured out how to um, encapsulate a liquid in ice, you know, in, in essentially a sorbet, which was um, very innovative. And I worked that technique over and over and over again. I did it at Alinea. I did it at WD-50. I even did it a little bit beyond at Empeon, but then sooner or later it was kind of like, mm. you got to put this to bed. Yeah. You got to stop. So I love that you've teased out the rest of your career because we'll get to all those points. But to, back to Chicago, you're working with Grant Ackett's and, and, you know, you speak about the intensity at, at Clio, but man, legendary intensity of Alinea and many people don't even make the first week. Yeah, no, um, the that kitchen has an almost monastic silence to it. Um, you can hear a pin drop. You can hear you can hear the 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 little motor whir when you turn on the induction burner. No whistling. <laughs> oh God, no! Oh God, no! Nothing. No superfluous new noise whatsoever. Um, and you know, Grant had built this um, amazing reputation. He was doing all this food that no one had seen before at Trio in Evanston, and he bought. I think he kind of built up this this cult following. So bringing Alinea to Chicago was a very um, intense opening. Yeah, I think there was um, a ton of expectation from outsiders, but surely uh, 10 times more from Grant. Mm -hmm. He was very clear that he wanted this to be the best restaurant in the United States, period. Wow. And th I mean, that's that's a real that's a leap from from his previous restaurant. I mean, he was well regarded regionally, but he was going for it hard. 
Oh yeah, there there wasn't. Uh, <laughs> let's let's hope we get it. Right. There there was none of that. What does the silence do? It, you know, I think our listeners and and my, what's going through my brain is that seems pretty f- insane and and maybe even crazy. But there's got to be clearly a reason for this monastic silence in a kitchen. Yeah, and like, look, it it also depends on what type of restaurant you have. Um, yeah, it, like it, my restaurants, I I think they do sound like kitchens. Um, but at the same time, I don't care for whistling. I don't care for superfluous noise. And I think that just comes down to professionalism. You know, I think, you know, is cooking a blue collar profession or a white collar profession? Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of up to you to decide, you know, but you wouldn't whistle in a courtroom when you're about to, um, litigate. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so, and you wouldn't have your materials all willy nilly. You wouldn't, you know, you, you would be tight. So to that point, the kitchen can be that your knife case can be that if you want it to be. Yeah. And, and again, the great thing about this business is it can really be different things for different people. Um, for some people, the idea of that level of intensity might sound awful or oppressive. And that's OK, too. There, there's no right or wrong. You know what I mean? Some kitchens are more jovial, I guess, or fun. Yeah. And and it, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, that's the cool thing about it. it. It's not a moral thing. It's just more of a preferential thing. Yeah, exactly. And there's different cultures in office jobs. Like you, you work at a certain place if you have, you have different expectations for different jobs. Let's go to WD-50. We just had Wiley on, Wiley Dufresne, and, and I want asked him the same question. Do you think back about your time? Like does it just flash through your head sometimes when you wake up in the morning? You're like, man, that was a crazy – that was an amazing time, that WD-50. Um, I, I don't think uh, – about those things a lot. When I do think about them, I smile. You know, um, you can't recreate those moments. I think nostalgia can be kind of, I don't know, it's fun for a second, but don't dwell on it. It really was a special moment in time. Uh, my memories from WD-50, obviously there's a lot of food memories, but I think I remember the collection of people even more. Yeah. I mean, what a rare collection of people coming and going. It really was sort of a nexus. When I arrived in the kitchen, just to drop names, like Sam Mason and Christina Tozzi were exiting, mm-hmm. you know, and I got to work for three plus years with Rocio Sanchez and Malcolm Livingston, who both mm. one by one went on to become the pastry chef at Noma. So I think that's a personal point of pride for me that that's really cool. Uh, yeah, there were just a lot of really awesome, big personalities in that kitchen, a lot of talent. And that's just pastry. I mean, like, really, like, there's so much talent in that kitchen. I love that you bring up Malcolm. Uh, I got to know Malcolm and Ghetto Gastro when he was part of that collective. What a, what a great, what a talented dude. No, for sure. So, you know, and think about what Wiley built to build a place that those people found him, those people found that restaurant, you know, to, to build such a special place that it attracted um, such a, a creative collection of, um, of people. Yeah. And like when you talk, we, we, Wiley and I talked about, you know, the idea of molecular gastronomy and edge cuisine and all the titles and names. But when it came down to it, it was like just the progression of cooking, which was happening in that kitchen, which has since been repeated over and over. He, he brought the example of the, the Starbucks sous vide egg is now common. Sure. And two things there got conflated. Um, during that time of cooking, there was a creative thing. And then there was this, let's, um, 
apply science and and speak in real terms and learn more. Now, those two things came together a lot at that time, but in my opinion, they are two different things. You know, so to the point of a sous vide egg, well, that's just useful. That's just useful um, technique. Maybe that useful technique can be applied to create something novel, but the creativity side of it at that time, you know, I, I use the term modern to kind of compare it to the art world where I feel like m that modern or modernist, whatever the heck you want to call it, was really about the parlor trick. It really was about serving someone something and they couldn't figure out how you made it. You know, it was that surprise factor uh, that did get lumped with molecular gastronomy. Yeah, it, it did. But it's literally science. Yeah. To me, that's just that that's not creative. That That's just about understanding things at a deeper level. Like you can apply molecular gastronomy to searing a steak that that, that doesn't change the way people look at food. Right. The end user might not actually understand what's happening with the molecular gastronomy side, but certainly with the artistic side, the end user is going to absolutely see that balloon floating above their head that yeah. is edible. I, I think modern art and modern cooking were very similar in that there was more about the act of doing it and trying to find new avenues to create something versus starting with an end goal in mind. It was more about creating new pathways. If uh, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. The big question here, are we in now a postmodern era? A hundred percent, which is way more complex, um, way more free. You know what I mean? But if you tried to put forward a lot of the, the things we did um, during that uh, modernity period, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it wouldn't have the same effect. We're, we're beyond it and we're, we're thinking about different things. We're, we're concerned and you know, seeking out different things. Yeah, I mean, look at Malcolm now. He's making, among many things, the most delicious puffed rice or Rice Krispie treat imaginable at Sweetgreen. Right, and, and again, so good. and that's creative too. It, it, totally, it, it's of just, course. It's just different. Yeah. Right? The application's different. So at Misha, like transitioning to to your new restaurant, which is a huge swing, and, and I've, I've been and I've really enjoyed my, my meal there, and I feel like you're taking a swing at maybe a postmodern approach to food because right now you're 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 I'll let you explain it but my interpretation is these are many regional american american classics being interpreted through your culinary skills and lens yeah for sure and again to segue from the creativity thing it it seems like my creative path now is can i can i put new restaurants out there and hide them in plain view hide them in the mainstream and have them be accepted but when really you start digging into it it's not like anything else out there to break down misha i was like well i want to i want to create a container a restaurant where we can cook everything else meaning not mexican inspired cuisine but you have to whittle that down what does that really mean to you what what do you want mm -hmm. well like what are the things and i and i broke it down um into three categories there's ubiquity uh so the marketplace the idea that like well maybe i do want to chef out a grilled cheese sandwich. Maybe I do want to, you know, just really cook meatloaf professionally and see what yeah. opinions I have. What a about challenge that. just to take that dish. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely ubiquity, but then there is um, you know, you're at service to your heritage. So and those two things together make up most restaurants. We could go to Veselka and get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and pierogi, and that's the result of an immigrant at service in two directions. They're at service to ubiquity, and they're at service to heritage, and both are extremely important. There's a third part that I think tends to be lacking a little bit, um, which is the discovery phase. So 
for some reason, um, French cooking in particular gets to do all three. So they get to tell you all about their food from Alsace or Lyon, and they get to work the marketplace and do the the cheeseburger. But then they also get to, uh, you know, swoop over to Japan and Morocco and integrate those flavors. So my stance is that uh, a French chef, you know, delving into Moroccan flavors shouldn't be any different than an Ethiopian chef interested in Burmese flavors. It should be able to go in all directions. And I think discovery is um, extremely healthy. And I also think it's a responsibility of chefs to explore other flavors and cultures. Mm. How do you then honor the traditions that maybe only truly honored from somebody from that region? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, when you start getting into the the appropriation thing, yeah. I think there's a fine line there. Um, my rule is that I don't ever make the dish. I won't make someone else's dish. I think that that is their job. That is their heritage. And it's for them to explain and tell that story. So like, even with Empeon, I will not make you food from Oaxaca. But well, I will take things that are profound from Oaxaca, like waje seeds or avocado leaf, and I will integrate those into our cuisine because I think they're amazing. And I yeah. think we should be taking a look at them. Um, but I, I don't – for me personally, I get uncomfortable as an outsider trying to speak towards um, something else. But hey – if I'm looking at Burmese cuisine and I'm like, wow, you know, you know, toasted shallot oil with lime and turmeric is a really profound flavor combination. And people should know about that just as much as they know about soy sauce and wasabi, then then I think that's that's worthwhile. Yeah, it's purely honoring the cuisine. And well said, Alex. Thanks for clarifying. It really is a fine line. The appropriation conversation is. Yeah, I, I think it's important now. Let's talk about developing these recipes because you've had some time to really – you're opening a new restaurant, so you have to develop. I don't think we talked to too many chefs about the way they actually develop the recipes and the dishes. How does that work for you exactly? Yeah, for me, it starts with – I can't think about any individual dish any longer. I have to think <laughs> about the overall concept first. What What is it? What is it trying to do? What does it want to be? What will the marketplace want it to be? There has to be that negotiation. Um, and then from there, you kind of work and work and work on the menu as a whole. And then from there, you start to dig into the actual recipes. And the way I develop them is I cook them all myself first. Mm -hmm. That's my rule. If I can't do it and or if I felt like I'm starting to do something that if I made that someone's job, they wouldn't love that job to do that thing every day. Yeah. That's a good test. It has to pass through that filter first. And then I take that whole thing and me and and at that point, it's in a vacuum. Then you release it. Me and my my um, culinary director, Duncan, I hand it all to him. And he'll do it all himself, too. And he'll add to Offer that. Offer notes. You'll have a meeting yeah, about it. Then yeah. it'll change again. And then, then it makes it to the executive chef, and it goes through another pass. And even then, once you do all three of those things, it's still not done because now you need to give it to the team. And that adds a whole another. And you're like, just execute this dish under fire, exactly. literally. Yeah. And then the last part is uh, you have to give it to paying customers. Yeah. And then you'll know it, ha it has to go through all those things. The hope is that you get more and more close to 100% right on day one. That or That's my personal goal now. Like 10 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, we'll figure it out as we go. But I know what the I know the pain and I have the scar tissue of retroactively doing a massive correction on a restaurant. And guess what? Fine, you fixed what they didn't like. And guess what? You're old news. They don't care anymore. They're never coming no, back. No, it's important. Openings to restaurants is essential, especially in New York with so much competition. Do you ever feel bummed when a, when a recipe in your, goes from your kitchen and you're like, man, this is great. Like, I just love this. And then Duncan does it and it's like, okay, it's, it's good. And then your third layer, like, 
I can't do this. I, I think I used to be that way. I get <laughs> I, I don't take it personally anymore. Yeah. You know, I think that the chef thing is very egoist. It's very like, well, I'm me and I cook what I cook and yeah. that's it. I'm I think restaurateur is a much more situational attitude. You know what I mean? So it's like, let's be very intelligent about how we plant this garden and hope that it all grows. But but is all of it all are all of your plants going to bloom flowers and give you fruit? Probably not. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You hope you do hope. But great metaphor. Love that. Um, Let's talk about the hot dog. You're making your (laughs) I, I just had to segue to it because you're making your own hot dog. You're making your own hot dog bun. Seems difficult on the surface. It is. And it, for some reason, I can't help but, look, I'm a masochist. I always have to have one dish on the menu that's just sort of easy uh, bait for, I guess, lower brow people to poke at. It's delicious, by the way. Thank you. I, and I just love, I mean, it's so enjoyable. But, like, let's take through the actual culinary side of it because I'd just be curious how you actually think you're in New York City, freaking lots of hot dogs here. Yeah. What's well, yours? But, again, that's a scary thing. I think hot dogs in New York City are sort of going away. Definitely. And if an American restaurant needs ground beef and it always sort of manifests in the form of a hamburger, well, let's give that ground beef to a hot dog. So we take brisket and we make our own emulsion force meat in house it goes into a, a hog middle casing cuz we like that snap and natural that, casing yep natural casing yeah um but it's girthy it's it's thicker than a normal hot dog and that came from the idea well restaurant hamburgers are tend to be bigger so let's invent the the restaurant hot dog the bread is made in house it's a potato bun all the condiments are made in house it comes with a sidecar of dry aged brisket chili you know, so and I know people are like twenty nine dollars for a hot dog, and my attitude is like, look at the thing; it's worth more. I mean, that chili alone, I was telling you, is love that chili. Just having a great chili side. When you say you make all the condiments, are you making the ketchup though? Well, we don't serve ketchup with the dog unless oh. you re- unless you request it. That's your Chicago side. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. You go. Um, we I don't do ketchup with the dog. If someone wants that, fine. We have ketchup in house, but yeah, that's the that's the joke. That's the one thing we will not make from scratch, <laughs> which is ketchup. Yeah, chefy ketchup never tastes right to me. I love it. That's a that's a pull quote in some ways because we're working on a story, Cathay Airway, and we talked about the death of Sir Kensingtons. Because yeah, no yeah. one wants anything but Heinz. Yeah, Heinz isn't something you beat. It's like a mountain you climb. Like it, you can't, <laughs> like you can't circumvent it. Can you imagine running a business and realizing that you have the highest, deepest moat possible? That literally, there's no competition. No, like, it's all, it's amazing. Good it, for them. I mean, good for them. We're talking about cocktail sauce. We're talking about so many elements that uh, you know, ketchup. They could like triple the, they could triple their the the price if they wanted. Yeah, they they could only make one thing if they wanted. They could just do that. They wouldn't have to do anything. Jeez, else. it's remarkable. Anyways, I'll link to that if that story is. I'll link to it. But more about your uh, your culinary side because I think you've got three pastas at least in the menu that I saw maybe four. What are you thinking about with the pastas? Because I mean, these pastas are they're inspired by Eastern Europe. Yeah, I I like the idea that um, Italy does not necessarily own pasta. Maybe. Someone could argue that they are the best pasta cooks, but, you know, it doesn't originate from there. You know, pasta, paste, pate, whatever you want to call it, these are doughs. These are noodles. So I thought it was sort of a subtle um, statement piece to have a pasta section without Italian food in it Mm -hmm. to showcase other cultures. What does the diner think about that? Because I feel the diner might be confused. It hasn't. I haven't gotten any flack yet. We've only been open for 10 days. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I said earlier about it all hiding in plain view. That is the hope. I want everyone to love it. I'm, I'm not trying to 
challenge people for the for the sake of it. You know, there's a rebellion aspect to the restaurants, but there's also a congeniality aspect that's tempered to that. So I do think there are three delicious pasta dishes. I feel like there's enough Italian pasta dishes in New York City that I at least I don't need to get into that game. I feel like the hiding in plain view is not new to you. I, I just go back to Empayone and the seven salsas. And you're like, there's people who literally won't eat salsa because they're sauce because it's too spicy. But then you offer them this incredible spread of, of sauces and salsas. Yeah. And they'll eat it because it's good. Yeah. And it's a unique presentation. So it's yeah. like, I get it. If you must serve guacamole in this country in a Mexican restaurant, then what can we do to differentiate it? How much guac are you doing at Empayone? Too much. <laughs> I'm very happy to not have yeah. avocados and limes flying around at Misha like at Misha. we do at Empeon. Yeah, I mean, the avocado pricing, too, just has got to change to every, like, that must, like, it, th- that fluctuates pretty, pretty um, greatly. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to open some new Mexican restaurants with spinach artichoke dip, and everyone's just going to have to be okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> so tricky. Um, let me ask you about Midtown East. I think it's fascinating. It's a fascinating neighborhood, and you're, you've kind of planted your flag there. In, in this neighborhood, that's a lot of office workers. A lot of uh, banks are there. It's like financial outside of Wall Street. It's like this, the major financial hub of New York. What's it like operating there? The first time I moved up there, it was a huge learning curve. Now that Empeon's uh, been there for about seven years, I feel like I understand it. And I feel like Misha, from its onset, is built for them. And for me, for that community, and, and for myself, I think it it, mm-hmm. it does both things. Um, and that's it. Like it, it it's interesting. There's a lot of corporate. There's a lot of office. Um, but weirdly, there's also a lot of residential. You don't think about that, but there's a you know a billion apartments over on First Ave and Second Ave. Eric knows about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so there's definitely a residential aspect to it. Um, and again, with Empeon, it was important because that wasn't supposed to be a Mexican restaurant. Those big sort of flagship restaurants tend to always be an American brasserie yeah. or a French bistro, something like this. So, you know, there's a point of pride in being able to have these off, you know, concepts and have them go into these class A locations. I have to ask about lunch because I want to know, Alex, how you're thinking about the sandwich because you clearly have considered a lot and you're going to be opening a bunch of uh, lunch service soon and, and offering a bunch of sandwiches. I'm excited to try, personally. I work within a walking distance of your restaurant. What are you thinking about with sandwiches? Yeah, um, well, what we thought was we're going to have a restaurant without tortillas for the first yeah. time. So let's look at bread. That was easy to do. Justin Benny, who's the pastry chef of the entire company, he's a bread is really his passion. So we decided to approach it this way. We said, let's let the baker tell the butcher what to make yeah. versus the inverse. So we started with the bread and he gives it to me and then I back into the sandwich based on that, which I think is a simple but sort of novel approach to it. Start with the bread first. If a taco is great because of its tortilla, well, a sandwich can only be great because of its bread. So you start with a, a, a great base, but are we are we talking about a, a global tour of sandwiches? I mean, are we talking about American style, so to speak, big air quotes? Uh, we have a banh mi on there. Um, nice. We have a, a dip. It's not a French dip, but it's a dip. Ooh, you're, you're being very cagey, these details. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, but yeah, it's like when you step back, the whole menu is super approachable. It's soup, salads, and sandwiches, but it's every bit intellectual. What if chicken soup is always on the menu, but it has to change country every month, no matter what? That's what you're thinking? Yeah. That's cool. So what are the first two countries then? Uh, for chicken soup? Yeah. Uh, we're starting with, uh, Chikurtma from, uh, Georgia. Yeah. Um, I don't know what we'll go into next. Maybe, uh, Chorba Frick. 
um, you know, from um, from Africa. But we have a long list, and the cool thing is that I, every culture has multiple yeah. chicken soups. So I, I think it's sort of it's utility. Yeah, I'm having chicken soup at lunch, but if you dig into it, it is kind of a a beautiful analogy for for cultural unification. Very cool. I love that idea. That's very smart. I can't wait to try that. Uh, I can't let you go without talking about Tacos, the book uh, we published here. Your your book you wrote with Jordana Rothman, um, published in 2016 or 2015? 2015. Thereabouts, yeah. Um, let's talk about that. I feel people still cook from that book. I, I see it out in the in the world, which makes me happy. I'm happy that yeah. people. You know, we all want our books to be beautiful, but useful for sure. Agree. I'm, I'm happy that it's useful for some people. Yeah. So let me ask you, uh, are, are you thinking, are you thinking book two? Are you thinking more books? I, I would love to do another book. What should I do? You know, right. when, when we did the taco book, the original, the, the immediate follow-up was like, we'll do a book about masa. And again, my reluctance is I don't want to be the, you know, poster boy for Mexican cuisine. Again, back to what we were talking about earlier. That's not my job. I'm deeply interested in something, but I, I don't want to do that. I want to do more things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I want to do the restaurant book thing either. So I, I know I want to do something. Yeah, you do. I, I, I don't know what it is yet, though. Um, it's perfectly great. Like, it takes some time. I want it to be useful, whatever it is. Yeah, that's the goal. But also you want to have fun doing this. So the recipe development's got to be something that you're interested in. Oh, for sure. I don't know if I could ever write a book about how to think about combining flavors in a new way. Um, I don't know if it would be a kid's book. I'm not sure. Yeah. Can't wait to see what you do. I know you will be back on the horse soon. Let me close by asking you, if you could have a restaurant name, a menu item after you, what would that menu item be and what would the restaurant be? Like a like a title? like. Yeah, or the concept. Like, what what would the dish be? And, I mean, you can think of the title. We don't need to go super cute. But, like, is there a dish that you would love the world to remember you by named after you on a menu? Oh, geez. It, immediately, and this might sound stupid, it would need to have some sort of metal. Yeah. It would need to be absurd. It would need to be called, like, the, the Annihilator or, like, the Master Crusher or something something crazy like that. It should, it should sound like a grindcore band. And then, I don't know, I, I would hope... I don't know. Maybe it's a sandwich that would bring a lot of different elements together. I'm not giving you a clear, concise answer. No, I, I, I think a sandwich makes <laughs> a lot of sense for you. Oh, yeah. Speaking of metal, I just love that you have a dark forest cake. Yes, the dark forest. Um, it has all the flavors of a black forest. But again, it's like <laughs> black metal comes from the idea of, do you know what it feels like to be in the freezing cold forest under a Norwegian moon? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Alex Dupek, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 